This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And a panel out of the state of California has issued a provocation as regards reparations. The provocation, I don't say that pejoratively. I wonder if that was the intent of their recommendations. The provocation, the broad strokes of which are the task force recommends that reparations be limited to people who could trace their lineage to chattel slavery in the U.S. and descendants of free black people living in the country before 1900. That the size of cash payments would vary based on how long a person has lived in California. It's a California panel. California, by the way, never a slave state. And that the rough estimate per person, though not a formal decree of how much each is owed, but the estimate of the damages caused by slavery, $1.2 million per person. Just in California, this would blow out the state budget, be more than they could possibly afford if this were adopted on a national level. It won't even be adopted on a state level, but if it were, it would be many times the national budget would cause a gigantic inflationary spiral and not only be unfair and not only be unpopular, but would be economically, I don't know, cataclysmic to America as a whole. Not that slavery wasn't a cataclysm to black people, and not that black people haven't still to this day been punished by being Americans who have not been able to accrue wealth as other Americans have. And not just through slavery, through legacies like redlining and just discrimination in the workplace, discrimination in the military, discrimination that took place well within the lifespans of many Americans. So we're not going back a century or a century and a half. But I want to make two arguments against the reparations plan, which has no real way of passing, and then I want to think about what they want us to think about. So these are maybe two novel arguments based on fairness and not just fairness to the people who are descendants of slaves. It is true that black Americans trail and trail significantly in terms of wealth and income, the income of the average American, the income of white Americans. But it's not as if there aren't black Americans who have accrued wealth and who have high incomes. So for instance, among white Americans, half make less than $45,000 a year. That is the median income of white Americans, around a little over $45,000 a year. And the median income of black Americans is indeed much lower than that. However, think about this. 68% of black Americans make less than 45,000, but this also means that 32% make more. So roughly a third, it's one percentage point away from a third. So what we're saying, if we endorse this scheme, is that there are a third of one population that make more money than most of the people in another population, but the third that make more money will get funding to the tune of $1.2 million, according to this plan, whereas the majority of people in the other population won't. Yes, one population, black, the other 
population is white. But if this scheme were to pass on a national scale, it would be saying that most white people would be paying money in the form of taxes, or at least standing by as a third of black people who are richer than them each get a million dollars. Forget white people. Let's talk about Hispanics. Hispanics at every income level make less money than black people. Wealth is harder to compute. It seems to also be the case, but the median income of black Americans, 31,000. The median income of Hispanics, 28,000. 25th percentile, Hispanics are 1,000 less. 75th percentile, Hispanics are $5,000 less than black Americans. 90th percentile, they're $6,000 less than every income percentile, decile, quartile. Hispanics make less. You are saying, under this scheme, you are telling 20% of the population, Hispanics, they get no money. In fact, they will have to fund through their taxes the paying of 14% of the population who in general make more money than they do. And the reason is oppression and the reason is discrimination. I guess you're saying to Hispanics, you haven't really suffered oppression and discrimination or not enough to get a cent out of this. $1.2 million per person for people who are wealthier than you. I think that alone, I think even a liberal white person who knows that there's a little bit of a performative element to the $1.2 million number might find that, I don't know, hard to defend publicly, or maybe not. I don't know how liberal these progressive white people who think that this, the reparation idea is a good idea. Then I come back to, you know, is that what they want? Do they really want $1.2 million, the people who made up this plan? Probably. I want $1.2 million. Or do they want a conversation? Is this the conversation they want? By floating such a high figure, are they anchoring our expectations, maybe, you know, at one point demanding less, or by floating such a high figure, are they saying this is really the cost? This is really what it means to every black American. And there is a case, you know, if we had some version of unlimited money or if we can do it, black Americans have been prevented from accruing wealth and generational opportunity to accrue wealth as an American is one of the most potent forces in the world. It's why my ancestors came here and it's why we, we, I'd probably be better off and so would you if your ancestors came here earlier. So that's all true. I wonder if this was the exact shape of provocation that they wanted. It certainly has provoked me. Uh, I wonder if in hearing it, how and why and in what directions it provokes you. On the show today, I spiel about the Trump civil trial verdict and the huge mistakes that his lawyers made that may have caused all those millions of dollars in damages to be awarded. But first, Ben Wittes, editor and founder of Lawfare and friend of the podcast and the Pescas, has been conducting these special military operations against the Russians. It is not militaristic. He and like-minded supporters of Ukraine and opponents of Putin and oppression gather outside the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. and vandalize it. But they vandalize it with lights. They shine a Ukrainian flag and a slogan on the embassy and it embarrasses the Russians. And Ukrainians sometimes feel good and Americans feel good about living in a country where where it's all possible and Ben's 400,000 Twitter followers can spread word of what he did. 
past special military operations have been spread throughout the world, only now that is much harder because Ben has been kicked off Twitter, not because of the special military operations, but because of his domestic political associations. But you know, the anti-Russian thing did play a role. So find out Or if you're in the D.C. area tonight and want to join in the special operation at 8.30, go to the Russian embassy. But find out what's going on by following it online. There's a link in our show notes to their live stream. Or if you just prefer your information in audio form, listen to my interview with Ben Wittes on the consequences of Twitter-lessness right now. So let's check in again with our old friend, Benjamin Wittes, my old friend, certainly. Now I will read you, you know who Ben is, but his official description says, Ben Wittes is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and editor-in-chief of Lawfare. And then depending where you look, it says at Benjamin Wittes, meaning a Twitter handle. Well, that part is not true, and we're going to get into it. Disinformation. That's right. Have you been, though, in general, beyond beyond Twitter? I've been great. Um, I um, have been shining lights on Russian embassies. I've been, uh, you know, editing Lawfare. I've been writing. I've been doing podcasts. And I haven't been tweeting. Yes, uh, and I've been consuming all your content, but let's start with when you say illuminating Russian embassies or Russian consulates, but mostly embassies. This isn't a term of art. Tell us about your special operations. I'm not, I'm not going to say against, but as regards these embassies. Oh, I think we, we, we can say against. The goal of these uh, special military operations, as we call them, is to annoy Russian diplomats worldwide and make the make it less hospitable for them to exist in democratic countries. Uh, it started about a year ago when I, uh, inspired by a gentleman named uh, Robin Bell, who some people might remember as the guy who projected the emoluments clause of the Constitution onto the Trump Hotel in Washington. And I was driving by the Russian embassy, which uh, is a big white building on Wisconsin Avenue. And I thought, wow, that building is like a movie screen. And it is just waiting for somebody to project a Ukrainian flag on it. And so I was still on Twitter then and I tweeted Uh, somebody should do this. And it got like a gazillion retweets. Everybody loved the idea, but nobody did it. And so I thought, huh, maybe when I say somebody should do that, it really means I should do it. And so a couple friends and I uh, got a bunch of big heavy equipment together, big spotlights, um, and we put Ukrainian flag colors on the Russian embassy. And This would have been the end of it. It was a big production. It took a lot of doing. But except for one thing, which is that we didn't anticipate, which is that the Russians responded. And, um, you know, I can shine lights on the Russian embassy all day, and it's kind of like a fun thing. But the moment you provoke a response, 
it yeah. becomes a big story. It becomes and, an international incident. In yes. Fact. Yeah. And so what they did in response the first time was they took their own floodlights that they had been using to illuminate the Russian flag and they turned them on their walls to try to drown out our Ukrainian flag. And the result was we had this little game of chase in which we were moving the Ukrainian flag around the embassy and they were trying to blot it out with their spotlight. And that tweet, uh, of course, now all my tweets are gone, but that particular tweet had, I don't know, 5 million views or something. It's uh, my, my best tweet ever is little cat and mouse game. And lots of people set it to music, you know. Yeah, I was going to think in future, in future uh, special operations, would Yakety Sax, the Benny Hill theme, be employed? So Yakety Sax was employed almost immediately, I think, <laughs> by, by Kate Klonick and, uh, you know, lots of different music. And so once we realized that actually the goal was not just to, to get a uh, an image on the embassy. The goal was to provoke the response and to make them show a little bit of who they are in Washington. Uh, we decided we had to go back and do it again and again and again. And so, you know, we've done it, I don't know, probably a dozen times over the last year and always with the goal of provoking the Russians into some foolish thing. Uh, and we've also done it in Canada, in the embassy in Ottawa, and in Paris, where, by the way, French national police, much less uh, fun-loving about really? shining lights on embassies than the Secret Service. So I've watched some of the video. It's not just light shining. They now are sending uh, goons technical term, goons out of the embassy to try to confront you, right? Yeah, so the not the last time, but the time we before that, and we're not sure what provoked it this time, because normally they stay on in, in the compound and they respond with lights and sometimes with audio. But this time, uh, it may have been because we projected a... Uh, a laser. I, I can now write on the wall with a laser, um, in and so we can write very specific messages. We've done a lot of equipment upgrades, um, and I wrote the number of the FBI field office for people who want to defect, and started, you know, urging people to defect. The FBI field office has a signal number for Russians who want to get in touch, and we put that on the wall. And no sooner had we done that, that somebody charges across the street with two umbrellas, stands in front of the projector physically, and starts using his umbrellas to block the images. So yeah. some of the people I was with picked up the projectors, and we have this amazing video of him kind of dancing with the umbrellas, trying to keep the images uh, from being projected on the walls. And uh. the uh, our guys climbing ladders. One of the neighbors immediately brought us up out a ladder um, and, you know, keeping the projectors moving so that you he couldn't stop it all. We named him Umbrella Boy. And we 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 spend a lot a good forty five minutes with him, and it's all on video uh, on the in lieu of fun uh, YouTube page. 
U.S. Secret Service was involved. I thought they played a pretty constructive role. I was pretty impressed with their comportment. Tell me, uh, how often has the Secret Service been out there for your operations? They are out there almost every time. Um, and um, I've been doing this for a year now. And I have to say that I, I know the Secret Service has taken a lot of beatings over the last year from journalists and uh, a lot of criticism for things. And, and protesters on, on January 6th, yeah. <laughs> Their comportment in this episode has been exemplary. And um, they've dealt with some pretty tricky situations. Uh, and this was one of them. This guy was, he was not exactly violent, but he was violent adjacent. He chest bumped a couple of our people and he poked the, uh, poked the, uh, projectors with the umbrellas. Uh, and I, w I think if the Secret Service had not been there, he would have been more violent than he was. And when they saw him uh, uh, behaving this way, they turned the lights on on their car and just came across the street. And two uh, Secret Service agents got out of their car uh, and just stood there probably about 10 yards from where we were. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it immediately, uh, he immediately backed off uh, and resorted to merely uh, putting things in the way of the lights, which is, of course, his First Amendment right, um, just as ours is to shine the light. And so I, I think this was very good law enforcement work. Honestly, it was it was subtle. It was uh, clear what they were doing, that they they have to protect the embassy from us. They also know that we don't pose a threat to the embassy and they're law enforcement officers. So they have an obligation to protect our First Amendment rights. And I think in this instance, they they really did a very good job with that. Also, I picked up that they uh, facilitated detente. And I think that this was a very, this was a fascinating insight into human psychology because you come in, you and your group comes in wanting to project a light and the Russians want this to stop. So you didn't, you weren't set on how this was uh, going to end. You didn't have an end game, but then the secret service began proposing, well, they say they'll shut their light. If you shut your light, okay, they go first. No, they say you have to go first. You dig in. We could do it within a count of three. There's all this negotiation that I just thought was in terms of take, take away the geopolitics, just in terms of psychology. It was very, very interesting. Yeah. So I, this was the second half of the incident, which then led to literally an all-night standoff between us and the Russians. Um, after Umbrella Boy went back across the street and re retreated into the embassy, uh, I made a sort of a snap decision that in light of his conduct, we had, we had had a long-standing, it wasn't an understanding with the Russians, it was just a mode of, of dealing with, with these which is we showed up with our lights, we would put the Ukrainian flag or uh, some other image on their embassy, we would use the laser uh, projector to write messages, um, and they would put up a big Z spotlight and a V spotlight, two Zs and a V, Z being their kind of uh, swastika image, um, and V being the victory 
uh, sign, even though there is no V in Russian. Right. We have always had a contentious relationship with the Z and V spotlights because they, when they put them on top of our images, some of the people who, some people in Ukraine who see this think we're projecting Zs and Vs, which I would never do. And it's 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 a somewhat clever thing on their part to confuse the people who are seeing what we're doing and make them wonder if maybe we're Russian nationalists, maybe we're... And I've had Ukrainians like tweet at me, why are you doing that? You know, it, it's designed to be confusing as well as to be a nationalist chest thump. It's, it's roughly to a Ukrainian, the Z is roughly like, I don't know, projecting a swastika on the Israeli embassy or something. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly offensive thing to do. Um, so, you know, our previous response to the Zs and Vs has been to either ignore them and just make clear on the live streams that those aren't ours, or to evade them and to try to project in places where the Z and V can't reach. Um, but in light of the violence and the, the, the decision by the Russians to actually send somebody across the street and attack us, admittedly with an umbrella, um, uh, I didn't think it was appropriate for us to take down our spotlights while the Z and V were still there because, and the reason for that, which was, it was a snap decision, but I didn't want anybody on the Russian side taking a picture of us taking it down and sending it to Moscow with like, you know, we sent, you know, Volodya across the street to attack them and then they they left and all that was left on our wall was the Z, right? right? I didn't want that picture to be taken and that cable to be able to be sent. So I just made a, a very impulsive and probably rash decision that we were not going to take down our spotlights until they took down the Z and V, which put the Secret Service in a bit of a dif difficult position because they wanted to figure out when we were going to leave. And, you know, they have, as long as we're there, there's some possibility that the Russians are going to do something stupid. And so they ended up as our negotiating mediators. And, you know, they asked us what it would take for us to leave. I laid out terms, which I made up on the spot. Yes. And they went over to the Russian embassy. And again, all of this is on film. They went over to the Russian embassy to convey through the gates. I mean, it was like, you know, like a like a, a like a negotiation, you know, through the gates of the embassy, our proposal. And that had to be run up the, the flagpole, so to speak. And then they came back with the Russian counter proposal. Uh -huh. And we ended up with I thought we had an agreement, which was that we were going to take them down in a coordinated fashion. We took down, they had three spotlights up. We had two. We were going to take down one. They would take down two. And then we would take down the, um, the two, the last remaining one on the Secret Service's signal. The Russians reneged on this uh, arrangement, proving, uh, of course, that the Russians don't negotiate in good faith, which you know, you'd think you might, we might have already figured out, but there's nothing like experiencing it for yourself. And so the result was that we were out there all night until the sun came up 
and washed away all the spotlights. Yeah, there's no, I was hoping maybe there'd be a back channel where you could pr- promise to take your Jupiter 2 missiles out of Turkey. But no, this was not to be a solution to this particular Russian-U.S. standoff. So as I, uh, as I think about what's the real importance of this, I think that there is um, a role, okay, obviously it's not, it's a little bit like the uh, the Bakhmut of light projection. It's, there's not much tactical significance in the target, <laughs> but there's some uh, symbolic significance. But on the other hand, you are embarrassing them to some degree. If you could take up even a small, tiny percentage of their attention and their resources, that's good. It helps in some very small way, the Ukrainian effort. Plus there's the symbolism of, we are a country of free speech. You are not. There's the um, the fact that you as protesters, your group can blow off steam. That's, I always think, an underrated uh, part of protest and something to... Um, something to speak for the general ideal of protesting. But it does seem to me that it's very important. One of the things that it can do, maybe this can get some widespread purchase. Maybe people in Ukraine could see it. Maybe people somehow with a VPN in Russia could know this is going on. But this brings me to Twitter. Without Twitter as an amplification, is that part of the special operations significantly thwarted? Yes, And it's the only regret I have about my exit from Twitter. So tell me about that. How is that exit thrust upon you? So Twitter as a platform for promotion of my work was dying anyway as a useful platform for promotion of my work. Fewer and fewer people were seeing my tweets. And so when I woke up on April Fool's Day and... Uh, my friend Matt Tate, a.k.a. Pwn All The Things, uh, was impersonating the Russian foreign ministry using his blue check mark um, to make his uh, Twitter feed really look like the Russian foreign ministry. And he was tweeting just hilarious um, tweets that sounded exactly like them, except they were pro-Ukrainian messages. It was it was really brilliant. Um, I thought, gosh, I first of all, I wish I'd thought of that. And secondly, I can't let him do that alone. And third, I don't want to be upstaged by Matt on this. And so I had the idea that I have this special relationship with the Russian embassy, so I would impersonate their Twitter feed and talk about the lovely light shows that that they put on uh, and the, um, you know, the, 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 the images that they display for the Russian, for Americans in Washington. And so I did that for an entire day and they uh, finally got sick of it, I think, and they reported me to Twitter, or at least I assume they reported me to Twitter. Um, and sometime in the evening, I tweeted, this is fun. I'm going to keep doing this until they take away my blue check mark or suspend my account. And the account disappeared uh, about 10 minutes after I tweeted that. So I, 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 yes, I violated Twitter's terms of service, the sacred terms of service. I, I did not engage in authentic behavior and uh, I impersonated somebody and I abused my blue check mark and I am without remorse. Um, And yes, it actually does hurt the special military operations 
Uh, Twitter was a major vehicle through which we distributed material about them. And it was the live streaming vehicle, although actually YouTube is a better live streaming vehicle because it's not banned in Russia. Uh, mm. And so the the if you do it in on YouTube, theoretically, at least people in Russia can actually see it. So, right, but if you're starting with a base of how many Twitter followers did you have? Exactly. You go from a base of 400,000 Twitter followers there to a base of... Uh, 4,500 followers of the In Lieu of Fun uh, YouTube feed. Um, it's it's a huge net loss, and and it makes a difference. But you know now we're talking about it on the gist, and that's you know Get, getting back to even. Yeah, pulling, <laughs> pulling up the ladder. So, do you have any way of knowing if your associations with uh, E-O-E, enemies of Elon, played a role. And listeners should know, you're friendly with James Comey, They're the former Twitter counsel who was in the middle of uh, the, some of the Twitter files uh, dust up is another uh, ally of yours, I guess you could say. You a have, former employee. He worked for Lawfare and he's a very close friend. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, I didn't know how much to uh, delve into your relations, but you have many relations, professional and personal, with people who Elon doesn't like, who Elon deems part of the deep state, and certainly some of the journalists that he gave the Twitter files to believe that and, you know, uh, have have reported or at least opined against them. Did that play a role, do you think? Do you know? I have no idea. Um, Here's what I know. I know that Matt Tate's account did not get suspended. Mm-hmm. Um, now that could be because I'm more on Elon's radar screen or or it could be that the Russians have a bigger beef against me because I'm the asshole who shines lights on their embassy than they do against Matt Tate, who's a cybersecurity expert who you know tweets about, uh, has very strong views about Russia and Ukraine, but uh, doesn't, you know, attack their embassy in embarrassing ways. Um, so the, the, the outcome is a bit overdetermined. I mean, I decided I was sort of exiting Twitter anyway, and I kind of decided, hey, this is a good way to do it. Um, go out with a bang. Um, yeah. But your advice to people who might be considering a big, huge... Middle finger salute to Twitter on the way out is to back up your files first, right? Yeah. So that's the huge mistake that I made, um, which, you know, I did not know that when you get suspended from Twitter, you cannot get your stuff. Um, so my account from doesn't exist right now. Now, it's restorable if Twitter wanted to restore it, but it... It's not like I can log in but can't tweet. I can't log in at all. And the result is that I have a huge amount of material that's basically a diary of my life for 12, 13 years. That's actually the one thing I really regret. I do, you know, the history of a lot of my projects is kind of annotated and linked to in in my Twitter feed. And I I would like to have somewhere that I could just post that stuff as a record of who I've been and what I've done over the last 15 years or so. Benjamin Wittes is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, the editor-in-chief of Lawfare. His substack 
His aforementioned Substack is dogshirtdaily.com. And if you want to watch these videos we've been talking about, go to YouTube, which is available in all of Russia on the old In Lieu of Fun page. That's where you find different special military operations in lieu of fun on YouTube. Ben, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel and the Trump jury, sorry, got to narrow it down a little more. And the Trump Manhattan jury, wait, no, got to narrow it down a little more, not quite specific enough. And the Donald Trump civil jury hearing the case where he was accused of sexual assault and defaming E. Jean Carroll has come in with a verdict, five million or so in damages to the former columnist E. Jean Carroll. The jury did not find that he raped her, but did find that he sexually abused her and then defamed her afterward. How? How did this jury make that decision? I've been thinking, following this case and thinking about it, and it seems to me the very hardest thing was how you can determine an act decades ago. We're not even sure exactly when, because E. Jean Carroll non-specifically placed the events around 95 or 96 in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room. And she said she wished to God she could. But how do you decide if one person says this thing happened and another person says this thing didn't happen? Well, you go to the standard of evidence. And if the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, Donald Trump would definitely not have been found guilty. Forget statute of limitations. There's just not enough evidence there to say that he did it beyond a reasonable doubt. But that was not the standard. The standard was preponderance of the evidence. So how do you define, how does a juror define to himself or herself what preponderance of the evidence means? The court in charging a jury will tell you, give you some ways to conceptualize this, but it's basically just synonyms by preponderance of the evidence. We ask you to conclude if it's more likely than not. How do you decide on likelihood? Now, when it comes to Donald Trump, we as citizens are all saying, yeah, I could see that happening. Or maybe we're saying, yeah, I could see someone making a false accusation against him. But we're not supposed to do that as jurors. We're asked to put out of our minds preconceptions. Not that they want robots or total ignoramuses, ignoramai, who've never thought about Donald Trump. But the standard for a juror is they ask a juror, can you put aside whatever biases you may have and evaluate only the evidence in this case? And then the juror says yes, and the juror sat on a jury. By the way, putting aside any biases you have, that's as tricky a thing as defining preponderance of the evidence. And we're not really given clear clues. So I wouldn't know how I, as a juror, might decide. And in figuring out how the jury might decide this case, it was sort of a... Uh, epistemological conundrum for me. How did they decide what preponderance meant? What was likely you could concoct a scenario where someone is making a false charge, she gets a couple friends to go along with it, they're not exactly specific about when it even happened, and you could see 
why someone would want to make such a charge against Donald Trump. He seems like a terrible guy. E. Jean Carroll's politics certainly disagree with Donald Trump's, and she did come out with a book in 2019, so this is what Trump's lawyers allege. There was a publicity angle to it all. You could also say and see why Donald Trump might have done such a horrible thing. He seems capable and has been charged, and this was introduced to the jury many times for doing such capable things, but how is a jury supposed to really evaluate likely and unlikely. Now, let me point to a couple of pieces of evidence that the plaintiff's lawyers pointed to. One is this. It's a piece of tape from the deposition of Donald Trump, who did not testify. And by the way, Eugene Carroll's lawyer said him not testifying didn't even make it. He said, she said, he didn't say anything to you. But listen to how he talks about his infamous comments about grabbing women by, well, you know how it goes. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the pussy? Well, that's what it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. Did you hear that at the end? Fortunately or unfortunately? Now, remember, I was talking about when you sit on a jury, you put aside your biases. So maybe when I said that, you were thinking, oh, that's pretty hard with Trump. If someone can really do that, that's to Trump's benefit. In Manhattan, someone can put aside their biases and not prejudge Donald Trump for the gauche individual he's been. But actually, in this case, I think our biases towards Trump so often get him off the hook. And we say things like, oh, he just says a lot of things. And he talks about big guys crying and being the Michigan man of the year. And nobody talks about this. And why is nobody reporting that? And he says phrases like fortunately or unfortunately as regards rape. But you know, if you put aside your biases, if you just listen to what the guy said, he was saying that celebrities, well-known figures, perhaps fortunately get to sexually abuse people. He was saying under oath, he didn't testify in court. So this is what the jury had to go on. And the plaintiffs made it clear to pay attention to this. Donald Trump has just said, under oath, that it may be fortunate that a well-known person is allowed to rape, and then seconds after saying that, wait, are you such a well-known person? Yes, indeed I am. I will now quote Eugene Carroll's lawyer, Michael Ferreira, in his closing statement to the jury, fortunately or unfortunately, who would say fortunately to describe the act of sexual assault? I know who. He thinks stars like him could get away with it. He thinks he could get away with it here. I wouldn't be surprised if that argument, if you're a juror who is adrift on how to figure out likely or unlikely, that's something to grab onto. The guy did kind of say it, that it's unfortunate 
that we didn't allow rape. It's fortunate that we allowed it. That's a weird bit of testimony. And if you're not doing the thing where you're giving Donald Trump all these extra excuses for verbal inaccuracy, you're like, I will now consider that as a piece of testimony from the accused saying he thinks it's okay to rape. Then there's the part about, well, he denied it. His main point in denying it, other than vitriol, was saying she's not my type. Let's put aside the sexism of that comment. Let's put aside the irrationality. Let's put aside the insult. He said she's not my type. Let's just evaluate it or a juror adrift, having those scales of justices, but operating in an almost zero gravity environment. What do I do with this? She's been handed a piece of evidence. And this is Donald Trump was asked again under oath to identify a picture of E. Jean Carroll. I'll play how that played out. I don't even know who the woman, let's say, I don't know who, it's Marla. You're saying Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. That's Here. Tara. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Trump's main denial was that E. Jean Carroll was not attractive to him, not my type. But he just mistook E. Jean Carroll for Marla Maples, a woman who he had an affair with, a woman who he married, a woman who he procreated with. To quote Roberta Kaplan, E. Jean Carroll's other attorney, during closing statements, E. Jean Carroll was exactly Trump's type. Quote, What did Mr. Trump do after I showed him that photograph? He looked at it for a moment and then, completely unprompted by me, he said, it's Marla. And then Taplin says, aha, she was exactly his type. E. Jean Carroll, by the way, a former Miss Indiana. So again, you're a juror. If you vowed to be totally fair, you've been gifted two bits of evidence by Donald Trump's idiotic testimony damning Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump didn't testify at the trial. And then Donald Trump's lawyers, I think, very incompetently addressed the infamous Axis Hollywood tape. Joe Tacopina, the Trump attorney, said that Trump's comments about grabbing women were, quote, crude and rude, but that he apologized. He said that, Tacopina, conceded, quote, but that doesn't make Ms. Carroll's unbelievable story believable. Takapina was not addressing the most dangerous part about grabbing them by the pussy, which may have been fortunate. He didn't address that. He just rested on the laurels of what the Trump believers accept, which is that it was just locker room talk. This is a specific type of talk. Now, so far, I've been talking about the juror who may have evaluated this evidence even while trying to be very, very fair. But that juror is an ideal juror. And that juror is not operating as we all operate, as human beings. And as human beings, we all have our biases. Even if we say we will set them aside, even if we want to set them aside, we can't help but not set them aside. And when Donald Trump says it might be fortunate that we've allowed men to rape, and when Donald Trump misidentifies as the woman he called not his type, the epitome of a woman who was his type, Well, then the juror, who may be governed by motivational thinking, which is to say, who may be a human being because we all are, that juror may have just been given 
a motivation. So I'm not saying that these one or two bits of testimony are what damn Trump. I am saying that when you hear Trump and when you hear supporters, just blame it on a New York City jury. No, it was his own testimony, his own refusal to take the stand in his defense, his blasé attitude towards these charges, which I'm sure he thinks he'll just appeal to the end of time and it won't touch him politically. And also his defense counsel's incompetence I would say that lost him the case. And if you want to tell going forward, if Donald Trump fires Joe Tacopina based on the results of this case, you will know that Donald Trump is telling you all, I am right, fortunately or unfortunately. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is our Philadelphia liaison of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.